Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I'm thrilled that you have joined with us for episode 22, the second episode of season two. And today I want to talk about what it looks like for us to be people who are in conversation about spiritual things. I wonder if you've ever been in a conversation about, you know, the ordinary things, whether it's the weather or a game recently played by your favorite team, your job, music, a new film, a Netflix show that you might be binging on. These are things that many of us are comfortable carrying along in our everyday lives. But there are those moments when the conversation takes a hard right turn without using a turn signal and veers towards spirituality or religion or beliefs or the church. And these moments are not so easily carried along. Given what I do for work, one of the most common questions I am asked by people is, how do I speak to my friends or my family or my coworkers or classmates about spirituality? How do I speak to them about God? How do I speak to them about my faith? And the reason I receive these questions is because it is not easy. Whether it is speaking with a conservative uncle or a friend who is an atheist or a coworker who is antagonistic toward your faith or even a spouse with whom you find many points of agreement, spiritual conversations often stump so many of us. How then do we approach these conversations? How do we engage with humility and conviction? How do we approach these conversations with passion and still possess a longing to listen? What do we make of spiritual conversations? How do we speak God? Today we have with us Jonathan Merritt, who will share with us about his latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Jonathan is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics, writing for outlets such as The Atlantic, uh, he's a contributing editor for the week. He also writes for the New York Times, the USA Today, BuzzFeed, the Washington Post, and Christianity Today, and is the author of Jesus is Better Than You Imagined in a Faith of Our Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Wars. Jonathan, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, friend. Yeah. So let's start with uh, what should our listeners know about you? Can you share a bit of your journey growing up? What's brought you to this place of writing about this topic of really, in some ways, uh, faith and politics. Yeah, you know, you started with where I am now, which is I really am a, a, a student of American religion and um, particularly what's going on in Christianity today in the United States. Uh, I come to that honestly. I uh, grew up uh, evangelical, Southern Baptist, actually. My dad is a, is a Southern Baptist pastor, um, a televangelist, an author, we're very, very good friends. And uh, I went to seminary. I did all, checked all the boxes. I served uh, as a minister in a local church before really having this kind of quasi-evangelical calling moment where I was like, you need to be writing. You need hmm. to be out there writing, not, not just in Christian outlets, but for the general market, helping to kind of um, maybe figure out what's going on and help other people figure out what's going on. And so a few years ago, I started doing that, exactly that. That's when I started writing. And so a lot of people look to me to say, like, what's going on in the world? You know, I live now in New York City, which is sort of the leading edge of, of culture, if you will. And so, you know, a lot of people say, if you look at New York City, you're looking into the future hmm. uh, of where the rest of America will be in five years, 10 years. And so there is, it, it's sort of an interesting place to live for somebody who's a faith and culture writer. And I'm really trying to get my head around what's happening in this moment in the, in the life of the body of Christ and in the life of this nation. 
Yeah. And what do you, what do you see happening in this moment? Because it's, I've spoken on the podcast before of how it's been disorienting for so many people, given who our sitting president is, uh, giving the massive amount of white evangelicals who not only voted for him, but continue to support him, um, almost like there's been a death in, uh, for so many of us who grew up in that world of, was it what we thought it was? Has it changed? Has it morphed? What's your experience of that? You know, we're, we're now in a time of profound change, uh, culturally speaking, and I would say historically speaking. You know, when you look back over history, that change happens in these kind of punctuated moments. Uh, if you look in terms of uh, uh, politics, you could say World War II. Uh, you could talk about economics. You talk about the Great Depression, for example. Those are times where uh, things changed rapidly, um, faster than they did in other eras. If you look religiously, the same thing is also true. You look at early Christian persecution. You look at uh, the rise of Constantine and sort of the blessing uh, of the state on the Christian faith. You look at the Great Schism or the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I think we are in one of those times now mm. of great change. I think if you were to get into a time machine and go 100 years out into the future, people would look at the late 20th century and say, that was a time when things were changing rapidly. And I don't know what people will call this period, but I do think it's changing. I think the advent of the internet, the birth of social media, the digitalization of culture has accelerated change. I think politically speaking, and, and all of these things are connected, I think politically speaking, we've seen uh, massive shifts go on, socioeconomic shifts. Uh, and then religiously, you've seen an unbelievable a number of shifts. I mean, look at what's happened to the Roman Catholic Church. Look at the schisms that are happening within the worldwide Anglican communion. Uh, look at what's happened uh, among evangelicals, not just in the United States, but around the world. And then the shift away from, uh, I would say, an, a, a Western-centric or American-centric global Christianity, now that is moving to the global south, where mm -hmm. Christianity is actually growing in places like South America and Africa, and it's uh, dwindling in places like the United States. Yes, even among evangelicals, uh, for the longest time, they haven't kept up with population changes, but now they're actually shrinking. So we're seeing massive, massive shifts, uh, power shifts. And uh, when I look at this time, what I'm thinking is, is in some ways, the best we can do is hold on to our seats and name what is. Hmm. You know, there are times where, where you, you know, the, the trend in culture is predictable enough that you can vision cast, that you can act to shape culture in really substantial ways. But I think culture is moving so much faster than we can keep up with. The best we can do is sort of hold on for dear life and not become completely disoriented. Yeah. And in the midst of this, time of global change that's happening rapidly. Uh, you talk in your book about a massive change for you personally. You moved from suburban Atlanta, uh, which was deeply entrenched in evangelicalism and in that Christian tradition, and you've spoken about most of your friends uh, shared your faith. So you went from there to New York City, where you live now, and you recognized that upon moving, not everyone spoke your insider language. Uh, that you had grown up speaking and that you had, uh, your friends continued to speak with you. Can you tell us about one of those moments where you discovered kind of this lost in uh, translation or a language barrier, if you will? Yeah, you know, this, the, the book really, um, it, it's, it's about a cultural crisis, but it begins with a personal problem. 
which is to say, uh, I did something that, uh, that awakened something in me that allowed me to then see something that was bigger than me. I moved from New York, uh, from Atlanta to New York, and uh, left. Uh, I was a vocational minister and uh, really was sort of insulated in Christian culture and had been basically my whole life. I, mean, I went to Christian college. I went to seminary twice, and then went right into ministry. And so when I, when I moved to New York, yes, I was experiencing something that's unique in New York, but in a sense, it's not that unique. I was really uh, encountering things that people everywhere are encountering. People who don't, they don't get to self-segregate. They go to work, and they're, they're working with uh, Muslims and Hindus and nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, uh, unless you work <laughs> in Catholic uh, charities or something. Um, I, I was beginning to kind of encounter this pluralistic, postmodern, even post-Christian world firsthand. And a lot of people experience that everywhere. It doesn't matter if you live in Topeka or, or Tulsa or Toronto. Uh, you're running into these kinds of, of things, but it was one of the first times I ever had run into this culture. And I expected, I think, a little bit of a culture shock. What I didn't expect is to run into a language barrier. And when I say a language barrier, I, I, don't, I don't mean I couldn't speak English anymore. I could still relay a, an address to an uh, Uber driver or order a hot dog from a street cart, but I could no longer speak God. I, I'd have conversations with uh, my barber, or somebody in my co-working space, or someone standing on a subway platform. And I would realize pretty quickly that we were not, either, either they didn't understand the words that I had taken for granted, the sacred words that I'd used all my life, or in many cases, I didn't really understand them. They'd push back and they'd say, what do you mean when you say grace? Hmm. I, I bet you if I took every person listening to this, sat them in this room, passed out index cards and said, write down the definition of grace, you'd get almost as many answers as people I ask. And so we, we've started to realize, many of us, that we've become so familiar, we've become unfamiliar. You hmm. know, the late Dallas Willard used to say, it's not just that uh, familiarity breeds contempt, but familiarity breeds unfamiliarity which breeds contempt, that you can become so accustomed to something, you know, that thing that you pass every day on your way into work, you don't even see it anymore. Yep. So there, there are these things, these words, these totems, these signs, these symbols that become so integrated into our lives that we become estranged from them, that the familiar becomes the unfamiliar. And I started to realize that, that, that there were things I didn't even know what they meant anymore. And then I started running into people that religious language was really a source of pain for them. And so, you know, these, these conversations were incredibly difficult to navigate because of people's history with them. Well, you know, the more that I've talked to people all across the country, they don't, they don't live in New York City, they come from all over. They're having sort of similar experiences where yeah. they're saying, other people don't know, I don't know, or there are all these tripwires. The rules have changed. I don't even know what the rules are anymore. And as a result of that, uh, I've come to sort of observe, to figure out, to see, to test. And um, most people in America are not speaking God on a regular basis. Just like me, moving to New York City, I actually fell silent when it came to spiritual matters. Yeah. You, you pointed out how if you asked people what they mean when they say any given word religiously, a few years ago, uh, anytime someone would say to me, I want to become more like Jesus, I would just say, why? which was not the question they expected because the pastor is supposed to say, oh, good. Right, right. <laughs> and I kid you not, I probably asked 
uh, at least 20 people that question, and no one could give me an answer. And I think it was because they didn't actually know what they meant. It wasn't even that they didn't have a reason for it. They didn't know what they meant, what that looked like, what the process looked like. And I wonder when you talk about that, is there, can that lead toward uh, being an insular community where you only then begin interacting with people who speak your language, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I, you know, it depends a lot, I think, on your, on, on your understanding of what church should be, uh, what Christianity, how it should work. Um, I don't, the, the sort of insider nature of the faith, in other words, gathering together with people who are like-minded, speaking a language that's common to, to your community, does not bother me. Uh, there was a uh, there was a movement, and I think we're starting to see sort of the the rotten fruit of this movement that happened in the 1990s. Uh, it was the church growth movement, and part of church growth was built on this notion of kind of cultural relevance. So the, the notion was that church was not to be insider at all. In other words, it wasn't you, you weren't supposed to use language that was strange. Uh, you were supposed to make everything sound modern. Uh, the the music became very much like the like modern music. The 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 language that pastors use became like that. You know, you go into churches and people say, uh, I've heard megachurch pastors say, this church exists for the empty seat next to you, and so it became very external focus. And look, there there are positives and negatives to every ecclesiology, to every kind of way of understanding the way that church works. And I am not someone that believes that a church should be exclusive that a church should be insular. But, I, but there is something, and, and of course when you study linguistics, you start to see this from the language of perspective. Speaking a common language has a way of binding people together. And there isn't a religion in existence today that doesn't speak a common language that in some ways is unique to, or in contrast to, uh, the culture around it. What, what, what the goal of the Christian life, though, is to be, is, is not either extreme it's not to be the kind of hyper-relevant um, uh, pop culture with Jesus wallpaper. It's also not supposed to be kind of the, the 30 years ago where everything, it's like, no, 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 you have to learn the rules before you can even feel comfortable here, have a space here, or be welcome here, because we are so, quote, different that anything that looks, smells, tastes, or sounds like uh, uh, the secular, if you will, world um, is not good. Uh, neither of those extremes are good. I, I love, uh, Karl Barth used to say that the Christian life should be lived with the Bible in one hand and the New York Times in the other. Mm-hmm. That, you, you know, to hold the, the, the scriptures and the newspaper. And I think uh, that that is really the, the Christian life at its best. It's something that can be... Um, it can draw from the vocabulary of faith, which is sacred and strange, and in a way that kind of marks us and binds us and gives us something unique to us that makes things different than the outside. It's the thing that makes you say, I want to come in from the outside. I want to be a part of the inside because the, out, the inside is different than the outside, right? If, if you go into a church and the best you've got there is like a, a good self-help talk and a rock concert, well, look, come to New York, because I'll buy you tickets to go hear a self-help guru that's much better than your local pastor. And then you can go across to Madison Square Garden and hear a concert that's going to be better than any praise band in any church in America. 
there is something sacred or even supernatural that kind of infuses that. So the, the, the hard line that I think a lot of Christians have to walk today is, is to keep both of those things as part of their kind of repertoire, both of those things as part of their DNA, to be culturally conversant and at the same time not lose their strangeness, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And you, in the book, you write about the importance of words, um, and you talk about how in both the Hebrew and Christian tradition, we are introduced as the reader to the importance of words, and you describe God as a divine linguophile. And at the beginning of that chapter, you write, uh, in the poetry of the first chapter of Genesis, God creates the world with words. God uses language to form seaweed and sunflowers, caterpillars and cats, but God doesn't stop there. With a whisper, humans arise from the dirt and divine, uh, dirt and divine breath inflates lungs. And so what does that mean? We're introduced to God speaking. It's the first thing we see God doing, speaking and creating. What does that mean for us as humans with regard to words? Yeah, so, so what, you, what you have here is you've given us really chapter one to a multi-chapter story of God. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is at every chapter, if you go back and read the Bible at, at, with fresh eyes, at every chapter, in every moment of, of significant transformation, at every um, uh, new era in biblical history where something new is happening, God works a linguistic miracle. So it happens there in the first chapter of Genesis. God creates, and how does God create? God could have created any way God wanted to, but in that, the poetry of that story, and we, you know, you, you can believe however you want if you're somebody who believes it happened in literal days or over many, many, many years and epochs and the way that, that science has, uh, sort of argues that it does doesn't matter to me. The point of that narrative, the theological point of that poetry is that, that it was that language gave birth to it. And there is, a, I think, a sacramentalism of speech there. Mm. You find the same thing if you keep reading. You, you, you know the, uh, the story of Moses. I mean, when God wants to deliver the law, he delivers it with words. God creates us as speech creatures. God asks us to speak. Uh, the, the, the early Jewish community was, in the words of Walter Brueggemann, a, a community of, of utterance. The early Jewish community was. When you look at the prophets, the prophets are judged by. Look at the story of Jonah. Why is Jonah judged? He didn't speak the words. He remained silent when he was asked to speak. The prophets, each prophet is told to speak. The, the prophet Isaiah, when he's, he's called, a hot coal is placed on his lips. So this notion of the holiness of the act of speaking is something that is replete throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Jewish Scriptures, and it bleeds over into the New Testament. It bleeds over into uh, the teachings of Jesus, who defines his own calling as a calling of proclamation, uh, who does a lot of speaking. Uh, it bleeds into, uh, obviously, Jesus' last command where he says, go therefore into all the world and, and speak God. Uh, obviously, Paul talks a lot about words and the power of words. So does the apostle James and Peter. And so uh, Jesus, even in the, in the, the gospel of John uh, chapter 1, is called the word. In the beginning was the word. And so this notion that, that even... Um, the name given to Jesus by the Apostle John is the name of speech uh, or of a component of speech or a kind of speech. This is kind of a drumbeat that runs through history, and I'd never seen this before. I mean, I guess I knew intuitively that language was holy and that speech was a holy gift given to us and that speaking should be a holy act, a sacred act. 
But then when you go back and you read the scripture, you go, oh my gosh, this is actually like one of the subtle backstories in this divine narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, who Abraham Joshua Heschel talks, has the famous quote, he said to his daughter, words create worlds. And you've talked about that, that power of creation that we've been given in our words uh, as image bearers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, one, right after God creates with words, um, God gives a gift. Uh, I, I'll make humans in our, you know, it's plural, our likeness, God, Father, Son, Spirit, sort of working there. And people have often wondered for, for centuries, you know, it's not a settled issue, it never will be, but what is the Imago Dei, Latin image of God? And some people have said it's the ability to reason. Some have said it's the ability to follow a moral code or to know right from wrong. Uh, some have said it's intellect. But I think that a, a plausible answer is the ability to speak, especially when you read that passage in context. Barbara Brown Taylor has said that God could have created us stone creatures or sea creatures or tree creatures or winged creatures, but God created us speech creatures instead. That God created us with words and then called us to then create worlds as, mm -hmm. as God did with our words. You know, it's interesting. The first thing that God tells Adam to do is go and name, mm -hmm. go and speak words. Uh, that's the very first thing God says. He says to Adam, he doesn't say, bow down to me. Uh, he doesn't say, praise me. He doesn't say, love your wife. He, you know, he doesn't say, be, be good to your neighbors the, 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 who didn't exist. He says, <laughs> he says, go out and name the animals. Go out and attach words to things, yeah. to speak. Um, it's, it's interesting to me. You know, you pull layer upon layer upon layer. You find it again and again and again that the thing that marks us out as a human species, species and the thing that often images or reflects God from the first chapter of Genesis is our ability to speak to each other. Yeah. And there, you point toward that, that creative piece. There is such power in words. The number of people I sit with who will reflect on their deep core wounds and the number of times that that is related directly to words, both spoken and unspoken. My dad never told me, you know, I'll hear someone say, my dad never told me he loved me. My mom told me I was terrible. Uh, I heard this over and over. My brother would always say this to me. Um, it, it's fascinating how those have the power to construct something in us, both for good and for bad. Uh, and so I think you point out that, that the power that is contained both in the speech and in the times that we, yeah. uh, we yeah, don't speak. You know, Solomon says that words have the power to, to give death or life. And of course, you don't have to live very long to realize that. I think if somebody, one day if somebody ever gifts me a uh, time machine. I want to go back in a time machine and find the person who invented the phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And I'd like to open hand slap that person <laughs> in the face. Because whoever said it, it's one of the worst, most um, uh, false statements of yeah. all time. If you've ever been stabbed in the back, if, if someone has ever said, I love you, you start to realize that words are far more powerful than sticks or stones. Uh, they, they may not extract blood, but they can alter your life. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, people spend their entire adult existences trying to untether themselves from the damage that was done from the words that were spoken to them, about them, or over them. And so you begin to realize 
that the, the, um, uh, the concentration of divine power in a word is enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can do unbelievable damage. It can steer a person in, in a direction that we cannot even fathom. And what's interesting to me is, is most Christians, if you say that, and say, do you agree with me, check yes or no? Ten out of ten Christians say, yeah, 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 I believe that. I believe, I believe words are important. And then if you were to ask them, how often do you stop and think about the way you use your words? How often do you stop in the middle of your Sunday school class, in the middle of your spiritual conversation, in the middle of the sermon that you're preparing, and really wrestle with every word, with every letter constructed after letter constructed after letter, and ask yourself, what am I really saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Most people not at all. And so we believe cognitively that words are powerful, but practically speaking, we belie that we have never really incorporated that belief in the power of words deep into our own bones because we do not, we speak words so often flippantly without giving a moment's notice to not only what they are, what they mean, but the damage they may or may not cause. Yeah. And it's, my therapist friends point out that verbal abuse and verbal shaming actually can produce in adults the same symptoms uh, that adults who had physical or sexual abuse in their, uh, in their adolescence. Hmm. It, it produces the same symptoms in them, just hmm. words. Uh, never, um, I've never heard that, but I, can to- I totally, I mean, I look back over my life. The most, you know, it's funny, just like the story uh, of the Bible, that every time there's a fork in the road, Every time there's a left turn, a right turn, every time something new happens, it's always tied to words. Listen, if you're listening to this, I bet you the same is true for you. I bet it, every single person wouldn't be able to name one time, two times, ten times that words intersected their lives and set them off on a new journey. Yeah, yeah. It's true. I mean, I know it's true for me. Yeah, after my first sermon, uh, I had to preach to 300 middle schoolers, and I put together the biggest, like, I mean, it was a homiletical turd. It was oh, terrible. I can, yes. Met with a friend of mine who was a preacher who said, if, quote, if you preach this, they'll laugh you out of the room. Help me construct something respectable. And then at that point, by the way, in my life, I had no idea what I was going to do. I actually got like kind of pinned in to talk or doing this sermon. I did it. Something came alive in me. And the guy who helped me create the sermon asked me how it went. And when I told him, he smiled and said, you have the wiring of a preacher. It was the first time I ever, re- ever had that title. And mm. my response was, what do you think I should do? He said, go to seminary. I said, okay. And I literally enrolled the next day. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. It was, he, he spoke that truth into me out of what he saw in me. And it was, a, it was mm-hmm. a new direction. Here I am 20 years later, which is crazy to think about. It was that long ago. But <laughs> mm. um, you, one, of the, one of my favorite chapters, by the way, in the book is you talk about heresy hunters. Um, you write about your experience of being called a heretic. Um, which I've, I've had that title bestowed on me mm. a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you write, someone first called me a heretic when I was 27, a 27-year-old seminary student. I shaped an initiative calling for better stewardship of the environment because I didn't want poor people in developing nations to pay the price of lavish lifestyles meant I was, quote, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And, and can you share a bit more with us about your experience with with being called a heretic, you go on to point out how it's not hard to be called a heretic anymore, and it seems like every time I turn around, there's a new heretic on the scene. Um, why do you think that is? 
Uh, and why yeah. do you think that that seems to be coming up more and more? You know, the people that I've met who talk about heresy are some of the worst thinkers I've met. <laughs> um, and, and I'm serious. And it doesn't mean that anyone who talks about heresy can't think. But most of the people I meet today who say, oh, yeah, so-and-so, <coughs> yeah, he's a heretic. I, 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 nine times out of ten, that person is not thoughtful. Because you just ask one follow-up question. You say, oh, really, how do you define heresy? What's your criteria? And you start to realize they don't have one. Or, really subtly, the criteria for heresy for them, it's like the six degrees of whatever it is I'm passionate about. Hmm. So whatever it is you believe, if they don't believe it, now they're a heretic. Well, you know, the good news is, is that what most people who do this, most people who engage in heresy hunting are low church um, evangelicals who wouldn't know historic Christianity if it knocked on their door. But <laughs> historically speaking, uh, we've had a standard for this. We've called it the creeds. I, mean, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And uh, if you can affirm the historic creeds, that's what makes a Christian. And I'm sorry if 2017 neo-Calvinist, you think that your view on ordaining women makes you a heretic or not, or your view on hell makes you a heretic or not. It's an ahistorical view. It's a subjective view. It's a view that says, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to use a supercharged radioactive word, slap it on you so that people will stop listening to you. It's a word that's used as a silencing tactic. And so what I try to do in this chapter is, is to call people to be accountable for the way that we use words like this. And by the way, it's not a left-right issue, um, or it's not something that just affects the right. The right loves to call people heretics, and they use that word sloppily. Mm -hmm. The left loves to call people haters, yep. and they use that word sloppily. It's like, oh, you disagree with me? Oh, yeah, you're, you're a hate monger. Yep. Really? Really? He's a hate monger? Because I know this guy. I grew up with this guy. I played with his kids. I've seen the fruit of his life. And I don't think he's a hate monger. I think he's really sincerely wrong about something. But to just slap the word hate on somebody is irresponsible. And the same way to slap the word heresy on someone is irresponsible. But it goes back to the, the larger point uh, that we've been talking about, which is we are not using words thoughtfully and intentionally as a Christian community. No wonder, no wonder we are confused about what words mean, and eventually most of us, actually 93% of Americans say, I don't even have confidence to talk about faith anymore on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, and, and to that point of the, the lack of confidence and not knowing uh, how to speak about it, uh, one of the words... That, that I find is, re that's really interesting to me that I find uh, a lot of people struggle with is the word God. And uh, so just this morning when I picked you up at the hotel, I was talking with that bellhop waiting for you to come down. And we finally got to, like, what does God mean? Mm -hmm. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, some people would think it's some old dude on a throne with lightning bolts. Other people would say it's the ground of being. Some people would say it's the life and energy that, that sustains the universe. And he was like, that, that's I think God's like water. And I was like, okay, what, water? And he's like, yeah, without water, there's no life. God is life. And he started, I was going to say gushing, no pun intended, but he had this, something in him came alive just by asking him, yeah, I don't know what I think about it. What do you think about it? Mm -hmm. um, and I, yet we do throw around words. Uh, it's interesting to point out, by the way, the historic creeds are very, very narrow in what they claim as what they know is real and true 
uh, and this is orthodox. This is uh, what we believe as Christians. Mm-hmm. They don't actually mention the Bible uh, in the Apostles' Creed. And it's just interesting to hear you talk about heresy and realize most of what people uh, scream heresy over isn't in the Orthodox creeds, isn't in the ancient creeds at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all built upon that at some level, mm-hmm. but it's all window dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so maybe, maybe we shouldn't be so concerned about it. You go on to write uh, in your book that yesterday's heretics often become today's role models. And you talk about from Martin Luther to Martin Luther King Jr. It reminded me of a quote from one of my favorite authors, Mark Kurlansky, who said, it's difficult to know what to do with rebels, but saints have a thousand uses. Mm-hmm. And he points out that like St. Martin of Tours, uh, there's now the Order of St. Martin in the United States Army, but St. Martin of Tours put down his sword and became a nonviolent resistor, but now he's been adopted by the church, by the United States military, uh, so that they can use his name uh, for really a, a group of people that, that, that are mm-hmm. violent, that use violence to persuade and to, in their opinion, bring yep. peace. Yeah, and, 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 and the, this notion of heresy or heretic, it's a departure from norm. That's essentially what the word means. If you're a Protestant, you're a part of what was historically a heretical Christian sect. Um, the, and there was at one point, the church of Jesus Christ broke, there were people who broke off from that church and that church's teaching, and that is essentially a Protestantism. Protestantism is an outgrowth of a, of a movement of officially heresy. Now, that's just to say, it doesn't mean that if you're a, uh, a Protestant, you're a heretic. That's not what that means. It just means to call something heretical, to call something outside of the norm, means nothing really. You know, if somebody tells me you're a heretic, okay, but am I right? I don't care if you, <laughs> I don't care if you want to use some word that's explosive, but am I saying something that's of value? And it goes back, I think, to the story you told of the bellhop. So many of us, when we speak God, we are answer-oriented. Yes. Right? We, we're very good with declaratives. And part is because we grew up in this kind of, um, this like, um, you know, anti-intellectualism in the Christian movement was sort of called out in the late 20th century. You remember Mark Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. His first sentence was, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not one. And so out of that outgrowth, you started to have the birth and, and, and investment in Christian colleges and evangelical institutions and there was, you know, this rebirth of intellectual rigor. And you had this, this as part of that, you had the, the Lee Strobel's and the uh, Josh McDowell's and people really heavily trying to make rational arguments uh, for God, faith, doctrine. And as a result of that, we've used churches as boot camps to essentially train people to memorize certain answers and to prove their their Christian bona fides by going out and arguing those right answers to people who are wrong, objectively, we believe, right? So we go, okay, yeah, you're wrong, I'm right. Now I'm going to argue with you, and now you're going to realize that you're wrong and I'm right, and you're going to believe like me, and then I'm going to feel really good about myself, and my youth pastor is going to pat me on the back. And that apologetics bent... Uh, went wild in the church, and it made us very answer-oriented. But of course, if you look at ancient faith, uh, particularly the early rabbis, they were far more concerned about questions than answers. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the Bible, you find Jesus, I think, I don't have the exact numbers, Jesus asked over 300 questions in the New Testament. He was asked over 100, I think he was asked 118 questions and he answered three. So you're looking at, I, was, I can't remember uh, the exact numbers, but the point is, is that Jesus is, was obsessed with questions. And the early rabbis were obsessed with questions. You know, the early rabbis, they read the, the holy text, imagining that every sentence ended in a question mark. It was yep. an invitation to wrestle. So when you said to that man, what do you think God means? You weren't trying to anticipate his answer and argue with him to agree with you. You simply were trying to listen, to seek to understand before being understood. Most people, they don't, they feel very uncomfortable. Most Christians feel very uncomfortable taking a question-centric, a curiosity-centric approach to Christianity. They're much more comfortable with an answer-centric or apologetic-centric approach to Christianity. And that, I think, in many cases is doing more harm than good. It's putting off more people than it is attracting. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting, when Jesus is left in the temple by his parents in Luke chapter 2, they go back and they find him in the temple, and he's asking questions, uh, which is brilliant. And the the world I grew up in, questions were dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, to your point, what I see happening now is all the answers that have been drilled into people in that apologetics culture are answering questions that people don't seem to be asking anymore. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's, it's just not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if we're talking about the infinite, at, at what point do we just say, yeah, we probably don't have all the answers? Well, and, and you know, the, the older I get, the more that I realize one of the, not just most humble, but one of the humblest and holiest phrases you can speak is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many pastors do you know who on a regular basis say, I don't know. Hey, hey, can you explain the Trinity to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you about an egg and a shell and a yolk and a white. That's what it's like. <laughs> hey, can you explain? And, and, you know, it doesn't matter what they're asked about. They're asked about the, the greatest mysteries of faith that we've been wrestling with for 1,700 years, and they've got an answer. Usually it's alliterated. It's often three points. It's got 12 steps to it, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's an acronym. <laughs> And it's like, at what point can someone look you in the eyes and say, with all the same conviction that they would give you that simple answer and say, I don't know, yeah, uh, but that's okay. Because yes, answers can be holy, and yes, questions can be divine. But there's also that holy liminal space between the question and the answer. And sometimes one of the hardest and most redemptive things we can do is sit in the space between the question and the answer, hold open our hands and say, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And if you're listening, by the way, and you're a pastor or a leader, what you do in that moment is you give everybody who's been entrusted to you permission to, to embrace their doubts and not beat themselves up over it and realize that being right isn't the answer. Having all the answers has never been the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I often paraphrase 1 Corinthians 13. If I where Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, if I can fathom all the mysteries and don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I say, if I can answer every single question and have my theology lined up perfectly, but don't have love, I'm dead wrong. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that, that 
that piece of definitely being okay with the mystery and the liminal space and the darkness is, in fact, what we're invited into. Um, I, I want to ask you one more thing about the book, because I highlighted the stuff that I really liked. Um, and by the way, if you're listening, you should buy the book. We'll talk about that more at the end. You talked about um, our brain and disciplines, and I'm fascinated by the human brain. Um, I've done neurofeedback work uh, to try to even make my brain healthier and more whole. And you talk about a guy named Dr. Andrew Newberg um, and said that he's fascinated by questions concerning the universe, meaning, existence, God, and spiritual practice. His research team has conducted brain scans of people engaged in various intercessory acts, from Franciscan nuns reciting prayers to Tibetan Buddhist meditation, from chanting Sikhs to Pentecostal Christians talking, in tongue, talking to God in tongues. The findings are changing the way we understand these disciplines. What were your learnings there about our physiology and our spirituality? Mm -hmm. You know, we've grown up um, in such a binary world in Western Christianity, and, and it makes it easier. I mean, if, if everything can be neat and nice and sorted into two boxes that you can mark uh, black, white, safe, unsafe, orthodox, heretical, uh, cowboys, Indians, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all sorted in two boxes. Then it's real easy. You can just say, hey, which box is this in? And then your pastor can say, oh, it's the bad box. You go, okay, good. I don't have to touch that or think about it. So it's kind of really easy to sort that out. Um, but when you start to realize that there are a thousand boxes, a spectrum between bad and good, and some of those are mixed, that there's often a light and shadow side to a lot of things, it gets to be a little more complicated. Hmm. Well, I think that one of those kinds of binary constructions is the flesh and the spirit. And, and it, it's a, it is a often sort of rooted in this Platonic uh, Greek philosophy that, that in, in many ways comes out in the scriptures, because they're obviously writing with that mind, that framework. And we've sort of taken that on, particularly people who grew up in literalistic Bible cultures have taken that on. So the result is, is like when you pray, it's just a spiritual act. When you do these other disciplines, it's just spiritual. It's just supernatural. It's just something else. And now we're learning all these things about mind-body connections. We're learning about how we're holistic beings. We're learning about how this, the, the, the spiritual is the physical and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you see the work of Dr. Newberg, it's fascinating because he's able to scan our brains while we're engaged in these practices. And you can see the way that certain things light up that certain things are happening. And it also, by the way, proves how beneficial uh, spiritual practices can be because actually your brain can get healthier and it can perform better when you conduct these practices over a long period. It can change permanently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, it would not just be Christian practices. I think it's hardwired into us, the ability to meditate, etc. I mean, one of the most fascinating things I found in this and if you were raised in kind of a anti-charismatic Baptist setting like I was, this one was shocking. One of the things he did was he took Pentecostals and he, he hooked them, their brains up to these scanners and they spoke in tongues. And what he found was, is when their, their brains lit up, it wasn't the part of the brain that engages in active planning. It was the part of the brain that it engages in passivity. 
In other words, when people spoke in tongues from a brain perspective, it was not that they were doing something, creating something, etc. It was as if something was happening to them and through them. Whoa. Now, you get to see that just from looking at the brain. Now, does that mean that, that you should all go out and try to speak in tongues? and speak? No, I'm not saying that. I don't know. Uh, but I do think it lends a lot of credibility to people who say, I'm not just making up, quote, gibberish. Actually, something is coming through me or into me that's coming out of my mouth that I cannot explain. Well, from a physiological standpoint, that does seem likely. Hmm. That's amazing. There's a um, Boston College psychologist named George Stavros who years ago wanted to use uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the breath prayer, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a means of therapy. Mm -hmm. They took a group of people... Uh, and they assessed them before they did this, then had them do it for 30 days and assess them after. And so at levels of depression, anxiety, anger, um, all these what would be considered negative emotional states, all of them improved dramatically to the point where they are now saying that's a viable uh, treatment is huh. that breath prayer huh. uh, because of what it does to people's mental and emotional state, that mm -hmm. there is this integration we're rediscovering of mm -hmm. Definitely the physical and the spiritual. Um, I'd love to, by the way, talk through every chapter in the book. Obviously, we don't have time for that. Um, when it comes to this idea of speaking God, you, you talk in the book a bit about how few people are doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear some of your learnings on that. But then how do we become people that, in fact, do engage in healthy spiritual conversations with others? Mm -hmm. Well, I would. Uh, there's three question sort of packed into that, and, and I'll say this. What did I learn? I, I conducted a study with the help of the Barna Group, which is a social science uh, research firm focused on religion and public life in America. We found that, uh, speaking to over a 1,000 Americans, that only 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual conversation um, on a regular basis. That didn't skyrocket when you look at just practicing or church-going Christians. Only one in eight practicing Christians have a spiritual conversation on a regular basis. Um, in addition to that, if you ask why, there are a range of reasons, and all the data is in the book in kind of um, infographics. But you know, people say these things create arguments, or that this language has become too politicized, or uh, I don't want to sound like an extremist, or I've been hurt by these words in the mm -hmm. past. So there are a lot of reasons why we don't, but whatever the reason, then that begs the question, okay, how do we start speaking God? Now, I give some practical things mm -hmm. in the back, kind of a step one, two, three, four, five, ways that you can do this. Uh, individually or even better in community, mm -hmm. which is really, a, 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 I think, that's best done as a communal practice. So there's a guide in the back called a how-to guide for seekers and speakers. But I also talk about, and I talked about this at um, Denver Community Church even today, which is focusing not just on what we can do, but who we can become. Mm -hmm. What would it look like to become a God speaker, to become the kind of person who would be able to speak about God and to do it comfortably. So I think that that involves developing various virtues in our lives. Uh, I've talked about the virtue of courage. It takes courage to say anything these days. Uh, passion is important. You've got to be passionate. It's got to come, stem from, can be connected to your love for God and Jesus and the spiritual life. Uh, I think that vulnerability is important. So many people, they talk about God you know, it's like God is, it's like they're, they're a coroner standing over a corpse, uh, and they're talking about this dead thing, but God is a living, breathing being, 
And uh, even the Word of God is the living, the only time I, I believe in the Bible that the phrase, the Word of God, it's not in John 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, but the time where the Bible is referred to as the Word of God, it's called the Word of God is living, right? It says the Word of God is living, it's alive. It, it grows, it, 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 you're, you're, you look at it and it changes before your eyes. Um, you see things you never saw before. And so it takes, I think, a certain amount of vulnerability, creativity, imagination. So I think I often ask people, what would it look like to nurture these kinds of virtues in your life so you become the kind of person who would feel more comfortable speaking God? And uh, I, think, I think that's probably where I would begin. I'd begin by nurturing those, those critical virtues in my life and then starting in a, in a communal setting yeah. and uh, using the, the how-to guide at the end as kind of a, a partial guide. I'll also be releasing a, a small group guide on my website for free. It may be out by the time this um, podcast comes out, but I'm going to put a small group guide on my website. So if people want to go through the book with their small group communities, they can, and they'll have questions at the end of every chapter, et cetera. And so, you know what? Do something. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Start re-engaging. Start moving your mouth. Um, Don't don't put pressure on yourself to have all the answers. Um, Embrace the holiness of the questions and learn to, as you know, as the ancient rabbis would say, God is in the wrestling. So just yeah. get in that wrestling ring and start wrestling with these words. Yeah. And we talk all the time on the Changing Faith podcast about what are our next steps. And you heard Jonathan just share about some of those of not only doing something, but also asking yourself, who am I becoming? Uh, how am I growing? How am I maturing? And definitely you can consult the back part of his book uh, to learn more about steps that you can take. Jonathan, how can our listeners learn more about you and your work? How can they find you online? You know, I always say the best is just to go to my website, jonathanmerritt.com. That's two R's and two T's in Merritt, M-E-R-R-I-T-T. And that's kind of like you can sign up for my newsletter. You can, you can see all the articles that I'm writing for various publications. You can download all kinds of resources there, link to my various podcasts. So I always send people to my website. Perfect. And uh, your new book is available anywhere books are sold? Yeah, well, you know, it's so funny. I always say, people say, where can I buy learning to speak God from scratch? And the, the phrase that people used to use is, you can buy it wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> then I was like, where are the like really crappy books sold? <laughs> um, but yes, you can. You go to Amazon. I love Barnes & Noble. Uh, if you want an independent bookstore, I always, I love Hearts and Minds. They're in um, Pennsylvania, a great guy there named Byron Borger. Or you can go to an independent bookstore in your neighborhood. I love that too. Yeah. And uh, the, the book title is Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And I can say that I had the pleasure of reading it this summer on vacation and it brought me to tears. Felt like it, it named things that I've been holding that I wasn't sure even how to name those things. And so I can't thank you enough for writing it. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, thank you, too, for being with us here on the Changing Faith podcast. It's been great to sit and chat with you. Thanks, friend. And uh, for all of you listening, we say thank you again for joining us for this episode. And my hope is that we will learn to, as Jonathan says, that we will learn to speak God, that we will do so with courage and passion and humility, recognizing that when we speak of God, We speak of the one who is endlessly knowable, which means we will always be in process of discovering and rediscovering new ways of speaking. On our next episode, uh, we'll have uh, a friend with us to talk about connection and connecting with people in all places. 
and I hope you will join us again for that. Until then, however, as always, much love and peace be with you.